You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 134, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And I'm delighted today to have an expert, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Dr. Bhattacharya has been a heterodox thinker, although he would describe himself as orthodox, but certainly when it comes to COVID, he has been an outstanding leading voice in the resistors to most of the lockdowns and mask mandates that exist in the country. But he became probably most famous when he helped co-write the Great Barrington Declaration. He and two other prominent epidemiologists decided to write a declaration which laid out their thoughts of what should be done to handle the COVID pandemic, namely that the focus should be entirely on protecting the vulnerable. We knew only a month or two into the pandemic exactly who the vulnerable will be. Generally speaking, when it comes to a large public health effort to protect the population in whole, you do as much as you can to those who are going to be most affected with causing the least amount of disruption. Namely, you'd focus on the people who are the most vulnerable. In this case, not children, not teenagers, not young adults, but you focus on the elderly, especially those in places like nursing homes, where 40% of the deaths in COVID have come in nursing homes. That should have been your primary focus, and the places that get that policy right change their attitude and their approach to taking care of the entire pandemic. We didn't do that in this country. In fact, we haven't done it pretty much anywhere in the world. And because of that, we've had a lot of disruptions and a lot of problems. And that's what we're going to discuss today, what we got wrong and exactly what we should have done. And we're going to have a large, larger discussion as well on the role of science in all of this and scientists and how we've somehow short-circuited the scientific discovery and the exploration process that we normally have as scientists or people who practice scientific pursuits like physicians. We're not, I think, scientists, but we definitely know science and we know how to apply it. We're sort of applied scientists, like an engineer. But either way, the process where you figure that out has been short-circuited and hasn't been working. Why is that? And how do we get that fixed? And that's what Dr. J. Bhattacharya is looking to do. And we're going to have a fun discussion where we talk about that and all sorts of other things COVID-related and a little bit non-COVID-related. So buckle in. You're going to have a great time with this listen. But before we get to that, a word from our sponsor. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? 
Whether you're burned out, need a change of pace, or looking to supplement your income, Locum Tenens might be the solution for you. Not sure where to start? LocumStory.com is a place where you can get real, unbiased answers to your questions. They answer basic questions like, what is Locum Tenens? Two more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, various specialties, and how Locum Tenens can work for you. Go to LocumStory.com or DrPodcastNetwork.com slash LocumStory and get the answers. Well, I know you're going to love this episode. Make sure if you like the show to please subscribe to it. Also go back to the archives and find some others that you might like. Share it with your friends. Continue to share it with your colleagues and friends and family. That's how the show is growing so much. I really appreciate it a ton. Please visit the website at theparadox.com. That's, again, spelled P-R-A-D-O-C-S. And there you can find out more information on the show, links that we talk about, especially you can find the Great Barrington Declaration. Read it yourself. It's a fairly short document, and it's pretty straightforward. I also greatly appreciate my patrons at patreon.com slash theparadox. There you can support the show on a monthly basis, help keep the lights on, help with the promotion of the show. I've now got somebody who's editing my video and we're posting more things on YouTube. And so we're trying to expand the reach and get this information out to more people. So without your support, I certainly couldn't do that. And it's through the generosity of my patrons that I'm able to keep this going. And it helps justify my time and effort to my family. <laughs> but without further ado, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, in Science is Broken, it's time we fix it. Enjoy. I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. He's a professor of medicine at Stanford University and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He directs Stanford's Center for Demography and Economics and of Health and Aging. He got his MD and PhD from Stanford, his PhD is in economics. He's published 135 articles, at least, in peer-reviewed scientific journals on medicine, economics, law, health policy, epidemiology, public health. And most famously, perhaps recently, he is a co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration with uh, other authors, Dr. Sunitra Gupta and Dr. Mold Kohlerf. And that was, I guess, the 5th of October in 2020. And that was a focus on measure protections for COVID. Dr. Bhattacharya, thank you so much for joining the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Eric. My pleasure. Yeah, it's uh, great. And what's funny is when that Great De- uh, Barrington Declaration first came out, I had assumed it was like, you know, sort of selling itself and not realizing that that was the name of the town, Great Barrington. I mean, of all the places you could have had this random sort of meeting, it made it, it really made it seem like this real momentous uh, document. It, when It actually it, felt momentous at the time, although the name of the name of the town was, was fortuitous in some sense. Although actually funny is like, I think the town council didn't like it very much. So they, 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 they had some statement saying that it's not us, not it's, it's, it's Great Barrington, but it's not Great Barrington. I mean, whatever. Um, <laughs> Um, the, the, uh, the meeting itself, uh, the, the idea the, 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 the declaration itself is interesting because it's not actually all that original. The, the idea is very simple, protect the vulnerable. We know who's vulnerable in, with this disease. It's, it's older populations with certain chronic diseases, do everything you can to protect them, move heaven and earth to protect them. We spent $6 trillion, use those $6 trillion mainly just to protect them. Um, and for the rest of the population, the lockdowns are worse than the disease, right? So for children, more children have died of the, of the flu last year than COVID. Um, the lockdowns have harmed them in just incalculable ways, keeping them out of school, uh, giving, make, you can't have play dates, you can't go to the playground, you can't, I mean, normal developmental stuff. Um, right. For that, lift the lockdown, because that actually benefits their health. Um, and so it's, it's it, it, but that's the old pre-pandemic plan. Disrupt society as little as possible, focus on protecting the vulnerable. So we didn't say anything original, um, but uh, the fact was that at that point in October of last year, 
the, the scientific discussion but become utterly stifled where uh, if you said anything against the lockdown as a scientist, you were going to be stomped on. And what we wanted to do was open up the scientific debate. That was our main goal, to give people, and many, 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 many scientists that had second thoughts about lockdowns even then, um, but they, were, they kept themselves quiet because of the fear of being censored, fear of being right. sort of, 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 uh, sort of outcast. Um, and we wanted to open up that scientific debate to show that, look, there are people that are, that are thinking this way. Uh, we're not unreasonable people. We want to engage in a scientific discussion around this as, as opposed to the, 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 the sort of fake uh, consensus that existed at the time. Um, so that, that was our main purpose. I think in that sense, we, we accomplished what we, we set out to do. And you know, some, it didn't hurt to have such a funny name. I mean, it's, it was, was <laughs> <laughs> uh, And so I think, you know, to, to that point, I guess you, know, you look at some sort of prominent things within medicine. You see Dr. Emil Freerich, uh, he's the pioneer of cancer treatment. He was experimenting on children, basically, to, to solve the leukemia problem and was first introduced and used uh, chemotherapy, uh, you know, roundly criticized throughout most of his career until he got to the point now. I mean, now we look at leukemia and children, it's about 94% cure rate, which is, you know, a miracle. Yeah. And then you look at the uh, Australian physicians, uh, was it Robin, um, yeah. Mary Marshall, Robin Warren, uh, where they were saying, well, there's an actually bacterial infection that causes, causes uh, stomach ulcers. It's not actually stress or you know too much coffee or whatever and it's actually infection I mean, that's what I, that's what i learned in medical school i learned in medical school don't drink don't drink coffee don't, don't reduce your stress <laughs> and that'll solve your also i mean I'm, I'm just trying to imagine like what's more stressful than a doctor telling you uh don't don't be stressed <laughs> i mean that, uh, but yeah i mean i remember re reading the uh the the uh, barry marshall was a student robin warren student and he he volunteered to drink the slurry of h pylori yeah. cause himself an ulcer that that you know like persisted for like months or something um and everyone thought they were crazy and, and of course then they win the nobel prize and they've revolutionized how we treat ulcers yeah um yeah i mean i think uh it, it is true like i think science science like often rebels against new ideas but here it's not even a new idea eric it's not it was it, it was the old idea and it right. was this like sort of fake consensus uh created around panic and fear i think and also like you know like the the just like any other profession science has it's like sociology and the people who 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 were in charge of the policy were like had their reputations at stake in it and had very very strong reasons to want to keep that policy going and keep the, the fake consensus around it going um so i think that 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 was what we wanted to sort of try to puncture like that because there really are a lot of legitimate worries that we i'd heard about from scientists about the lockdowns and and the the, the availability of like alternate alternate uh, uh, policies to try to address it to reduce the, the harm from the disease um engaging in that kind of debate is healthy not just for science but also for public public health um well where squelch, squelching it i think is bad for both and i think we've seen the consequences of squelching it uh, to this day um so there it's like it's not even like we're trying something new this is like the old idea uh let's just let's just talk about the old idea again i mean because it's it's actually quite quite a fruitful way to go yeah no question and and to the to the point about the uh, the lack of discussion i mean i i think you know you look in the past and it's those physicians they dealt with the scorn within their specialty you know the pathologists or gi or at least medicine may have said you guys are crazy this is the wrong way to do things but they did not feel all of the world, uh, every aspect of society, starting with social media, you know, Twitter, Facebook, 
uh, politicians, the media, everybody sort of like would gang up on them. I mean, it's, it'd be interesting to, if that if there was that much of a, a spotlight on someone in their research now who has a heterodox thinking, um, you know, if if they could could withstand that that sort of pressure, it takes quite an individual to to sort of buck that. I mean, that you know, as as human species, as human people, we're we're looking to get along and to try and cooperate and to get through life without causing too much trouble. And most people, there are people who are unwilling to do that. And you need those people. Oftentimes those people are cranks and they have nothing of use to give the society, but occasionally they do. And, you know, you need disruptive people and you need to uh, not punish people for having heterodox views. You can refute them. You can use, um, you know, research or whatever to say that you're wrong and I'll show you why you're wrong. But you have to have that discussion. You have to have that engagement and be willing to be comfortable enough to have that engagement. I mean, I think that's what people have just not even willing to have a discussion and say, you guys are wrong. They just say, you're wrong. We're terrible. We're not going to listen to you. As opposed to saying, well, here's why. Let me show you the, you know, my 27 studies that show that what their policy is working. Whereas, you know, there, I mean, there hasn't been that as that I'm aware of most of the time. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there are there's a literature that tries to argue that that uh, the lockdowns have worked, but mo- much of that is methodologically flawed. Yeah. I mean, the, the hard part is is like figuring out what the right counterfactuals. Of course, the lockdown were not a controlled experiment with a with a control group on the other side. Um, but but look, just to get to that, uh, what you said, Eric, and I think that's really important, right? So what you're describing is a is a norm that is absolutely fundamental to, to have science work, right? In science, you have, you know, you believe A, I believe B. And uh, we disagree. A pre- predicts one thing, A prime, and B predicts another thing, B prime. We do an experiment, and it turns out that B prime's right. My God, I'm, it's terrible. You're right this time, Eric. Uh, great. But then I come up with like you know, C, and then we have another another little thing. I mean, it's like this dialectical process where if I'm not allowed to come up with A, or, or you're not allowed to come up with B, or we we just okay, A is true no matter what. Well, then I mean, science can't advance. It absolutely depends on the ability of people to say, I have a different guess than you about what the world is looking like. And then we run experiments or, or look at data to try to assess which whether your guess is better than mine. And the more your guesses survive, the more it becomes that it becomes a, you know, like a theory that it becomes like a, a, a you know, established fact. It's never an established fact. There's always some, some other possibility that you might be wrong in a different way when, than neither of us thought about. Yeah. That's how science has to work, has to be open. Um, whereas like in, in public health, there's this, there's this norm of unanimity, right? So if I tell the public that, uh, that no, no, maybe smoking is not bad for you. Well, I mean, first of all, smoking is terrible for you. That, that's absolutely true. But like now I've like created this dissonance that undermines potentially the public health messaging around smoking. And so there's this like norm of unanimity in public health um, that that it, to some extent is necessary for its success, right? So there's two competing norms: the scientific norm that requires open debate, and then there's this norm in public health. The problem with the norm in public health, and the, the premise of it, is that the scientific discussion has reached a point where there actually is a sufficient consensus to more to warrant the, this this sort of like enforced uh, enforced enforced unanimity messaging. Um, and, and I think that's the problem that we had here. We, we had not reached anywhere near a scientific consensus. And yet we jumped to this idea that uh, contradicting what public health grandees are saying is, is, is dangerous to the public. I mean, I personally have been accused of that myself. When I, I wrote a paper uh, in July of last year arguing that, that uh, contact tracing is not particularly useful in this yeah. epidemic, which I think is still right. 
Um, and yet I was, I got accused by people that, you know, that, that I was, I was doing something dangerous. Well, I mean, like me, okay, I'm right or wrong. Like, let's have a discussion. We'll, we'll find out. I think I'm right. I mean, I exposed, I think I'm right. Well, what, what, what good has contact tracing actually done other than put people in, in quarantine uselessly yeah. uh, or, or ask people to rat on their friends. Um, I, I just, I just, I think it's one of these things where like, um, fine, let, let, you can have unanimity of messaging in public health, but you, from a morally, you can only have that if you have actually done the scientific debate. Right. And we didn't do that. Like we landed on it. Um, and it, it, it's hurt both public health and science, I think. Yeah. And I, I you know, the, of course, it's a novel pandemic. It's never happened before. Uh, we've had SARS, which was kind of close-ish, I guess, you know, back in, was it 2004 or six or something? But uh, when you, you look at initially, it, I think it was some, many of the measures I think were perfectly reasonable in the sense, you know, get kids out of school because we didn't know and a usual vector of disease spreading like flu and most you know respiratory viruses are school right you take kids out of school they're on winter break and suddenly the flu goes away for a week or two and then you the kids come back in school and the flu comes back in the community it's pretty clear that that's where a lot of that stuff but by summer we knew that that was not the case right i mean it, would, it had been there are a lot of things that i think they're because people had put their stake down their priors so, you know what we had done and from a political standpoint, if you put all your eggs in one basket saying we absolutely have to do this because it saves lives and now it turns out, well, I guess it doesn't, you have to admit that you were wrong or come back and say, well, you know, now we better information. But most politicians don't want to look bad and so they have to try and, you know, backpedal slowly or something like that. And so I think that adds fuel to this this narrative. And then also just with it happened to be an election year. And I hate to say that like the our country dominates the world in sort of its response and, you know, culture. But it's hard to—it's hard not to feel that way. Oftentimes, when you look at the world's reaction, if we're doing something in the United States, it—I mean, we—we we definitely drive a lot of the discussion with whatever it might be. I mean, I don't know who the leader is in you know most countries, yeah. but they know it's Trump. Well, I mean, and Trump, of course, played—he played an outsized role oh, yeah. in the imagination. Of, I mean, everybody. Um, I, I think I, I think I, I, I like what you said, Erica, but I would amend it just slightly because it's not just the politicians. Like normally it's fine to blame the politicians. I mean, I, you, 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 I'm, I'm as happy to blame this as, as next. But I think I think scientists themselves that pushed the lockdown were unwilling to admit that that, that they got it wrong in the spring. Sure. Right. That they they they'd argued that like, well, look, okay, two weeks to flatten the curve. Well, and then months, several months to like what to get COVID to zero. And it had failed. Yeah. Right. Evidently, it failed at great cost, even in the spring, like, you know, April of last year, the U.N. saying 130 million people are going to starve uh, worldwide or, or have a risk of starvation worldwide. Um, so it failed. Uh, and it's the scientists themselves and public health officials themselves advising the politicians that refused to change their mind at the time. I mean, like, like, let's just put squarely where the blame was. It's on people like me. I mean, look, we we did not change our minds when we should have and admit admit, admit error. Um, because for, for, for scientists and public health officials, their, their reputation and egos were also at stake. Sure. And, and I would almost argue that a lot of the scientists who advise politicians are generally speaking, and this would be, go to public health officials too, are generally very political in, in, in either their appointment uh, or you know, how they're positioned within you know, uh, funding for studies and things like that. So they're all political appointments. So they're very much more political than the average science, bench scientist. And so when they are all sort of working together, all having the same opinion, and certainly if they control funding for future research you might want to do, you're, it's going to be very hard for a bench scientist or someone who's maybe you know more 
doesn't have a feel strongly about it to suddenly speak up against that because you're risking a lot, right? I mean, if you don't have funding, you lose your, if you may not get your um, tenure at university, or if you already have it, you might lose, your funding might dry up, you might lose your lab. I mean, there's there's a lot at risk for being just a scientist who's going to go out against these people who are this is, right, controlling things. It's not just theoretical. It actually yeah. happened. Like I, after I wrote the Great Parenting Declaration, um, or I you know, co-wrote the Great Parenting Declaration, I got a lot of the people that signed it, several of them have been fired from their jobs. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, and, and uh, uh, you know, the, the, the NIAID, the National Institute of, of, uh, of Allergy Infectious Disease, led by Dr. Fauci, is responsible for funding a very large fraction of the of the uh, of the of the scientific work that goes around goes on around infectious disease. So, infectious disease specialists, um, uh, allergy, uh, you know, sort of sort of immunologists, uh, they all depend on the NIAID for their funding. It's a you have to. I mean, you have to be not human to like think about that. Am I, am I really going to like contradict Dr. Fauci in, in public it, it, when my, my entire lab depends on being able to get these NIAID? Now, in principle, there's supposed to be some firewall, right? So like there's this independent scientific review. I, I sat on scientific reviews, not, not for NIAID, but for, NI, for uh, National Institute of Aging, similar, similar pro- process. But it's, you know, the, 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 the head of the agency actually has a, quite a bit of power over what gets funded and what doesn't get funded. Um, so I think that there is some like, in a sense, like we're used to thinking about, about pharmaceutical funding as a conflict of interest. In a sense, farm, uh, funding by the NIAID in this context of this pandemic had been a conflict of interest, as has funding by the Gates Foundation, which has funded a ton of, ton of work of, of epidemiology, mm-hmm. epidemiologists, um, you know, a, 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 groups that we normally think of as div- outside of the, the, the realm of like if you get funding from them, you create a conflict of interest that, you know, like, like the NIH, I think in the context of this pandemic has actually been a conflict of interest. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have, is it Scott Gottlieb, who's, uh, has a position with a pharmaceutical company that uh, I think is at Pfizer. And of course, yeah, and Pfizer. I think there's something, they have something to go do with the coronavirus vaccine, I, th- I believe, right? So that may be a conflict <laughs> of interest right. to push that you have to get vaccinated you when maybe like- you have natural immunity. So in in, in 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 defense of Dr. Gottlieb, um, he's he's told you what his what his, sure. what his yeah, conflict yeah. is, right? I mean, usually you've been completely forthright. The, pr- the problem is like a lot of scientists who get NIID funding or or Gates Foundation funding. I mean, they're just they're like they 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 act as if that doesn't create a conflict of interest when it has. Yeah, well, and and going back to the Great Barrington Declaration, you're, you're essentially the the statement is. I, I don't want to say radical because it just says basically we need to protect people we know are at most at highest risk, which would generally be your mitigation strategy for any sort of problem, right? I mean, like you obviously don't want to protect people who are never ride a car by making sure they wear seatbelts, <laughs> right? I mean, you make sure that people are actually at risk and the highest risk we know those are the elderly and those who have you know medical conditions like they're immunocompromised or, or whatever. Um, and had that been the, the focus from the start? Do you think from um, a disease standpoint, not not the economic, because I think certainly the economic and educational aspect would clearly have a different outcome that, you know, kids would have been school and those sorts of things. And so and the business would have shut down and, and those things. But from a, you know, how many people get get uh, SARS-CoV-2 infected and spread it and how many people die of COVID-19? Do you think it would have been significantly different or do you think it still would have taken really until we have vaccine immunity because natural immunity just takes a long time to get get, you know, we we have short-circuited with a vaccine by about probably a year and a half or two years in this country. But essentially, you need to get immunity one way or the other. Would it, do you really think it would have made much of a difference? Or do you think it just would have at least been the same, but at least we wouldn't have had all the other sort of secondary effects? 
mean, that's a great question. So I, th I think that the, the um, so if we had adopted that principle, this focus protection principle, we knew in March sure, last yeah. year that the older people, so let's just take that as given that that was a no, um, that the older people are the ones that are at risk. We, we, we would not have sent COVID infected patients back to nursing. Homes. Sure. First thing, I mean, I, I, 40% of the deaths have happened in nursing homes, right? So I, I think like right from the start, we would have had a lot less in, uh, infection in the most vulnerable groups right at the very beginning of the epidemic. Um, if we follow that, that principle. Instead, we the principle we followed was we need to keep hospitals open and, and not overrun. That was the wrong principle. The right principle was protect the vulnerable. Right. And it led to the wrong policy, right? So it's not, it's, this is like, so I, I, mean, I think the, the we like throughout the epidemic, we've had the wrong goal. The goal is let's minimize mortality from the disease. To me, that's the, and because a lot of the rest of it follows that you also minimize hospitalizations, risk of hospital overruns and so on, if you minimize mortality, because who gets hospitalized? The people that are older, more vulnerable, right. the vulnerable, right? They're the ones who get hospitalized too, right? So um, if you protect the vulnerable, you also protect the hospitals, right? So all of the secondary goals follow from the primary goal of protecting the vulnerable. Um, and I, now, of course, could we have done it perfectly? I don't think so. I think that's not possible to do it perfectly. I think no place uh, in the Europe and the Americas have done it anywhere close to perfectly. Um, but could we have done it better? I think yes. Now, uh, like the the other goal this, uh, that you mentioned is is like reducing case spread. That's a mistake, actually, right? I agree. It's, yeah. It's, the issue was not actually to try to reduce case spread. Um, the issue is to reduce case spread among the vulnerable. That's the main thing. Um, reducing case spread. Now, it would be nice if we were a perfect world. We could snap our fingers and reduce case spread. That would be good. The problem is this, it's not a snap of the finger. Reducing case spread, we've seen what that entails. It entails closing schools and closing businesses, making sure you never hug your grandparents, making sure you're, you're, you, you, know, uh, you, 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 you don't go out anywhere uh, for, for months on end, don't visit your friends. Uh, if, you can, if you can work from home, work from home, but if you can't work from home, expose yourself even if you're 65 uh, to, 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 to uh, germs in your job. I mean, like, I think um, it's, it's all of these lockdown policies have been focused on reducing case spread rather than on the focusing on reducing spread among the elderly, which is really where, now why, when we released the Great Barrington Health Question, what I was kind of hoping in part was that we would have a, a conversation about how to do that better we hadn't done that very well in the spring right um and the, and what i was hoping is like the the public health officials would join with us and say uh here are some creative ideas like you know i'm not i mean i i don't know i i it's impossible for me to say what every single possible idea could be public health officials are actually quite good at this kind of creative protection of the vulnerable at least they have been in my experience in the past and i fully expected that to happen here and they didn't instead they instead many of them reacted by saying it was impossible but if you think it's impossible, then you're not going to come up with good ideas to try to do it. Um, I, I, it was really disappointing to me, actually, in that sense. Like, I, I, I think the protecting protecting the vulnerable is really the cr crux of this. Now, the vaccine came along in December and started and, and, and we started to roll it out. Again, we had this like very big mistake at almost the, the beginning of the vaccine. Now, many uh, the CDC recommended protecting the vulnerable, the elderly first, right. but they also recommended adding an overlay of like racial differences and like a whole bunch of like other sort of caveats and codicils before protecting the vulnerable, included amongst the protection of the vulnerable. Um, and so many states delayed vaccinating people over 65 so that they could vaccinate, you know, I, I, you, hospital right. workers yeah. and other, and other, other, other groups. Um, uh, I, I mean, it, it's actually, they should have been done better. Like 
vaccinate all the people in nursing homes first because 40% of the deaths have happened there. Right. That's that one. That, that's the very first group I would. I, and in fact, like that's what happened in like Florida, for instance, they vaccinated every person in a nursing home got got the vaccine by the end of January. Um, in California, that didn't happen until like late February. Yeah. Right. I, like you, it's a, it's a policy decision to do that. Uh, and why did, did some states make this mistake of delaying that that uh, and leaving our uh, vulnerable elderly exposed because they didn't have the right goal in mind? Right. They had this. They, they thought about the vaccine as if it were a tool to stop disease spread as opposed to a tool to stop uh, to protect the vulnerable. Yeah. Well, and I think that's that comes to that's what you have non physicians in some ways looking at looking at policy, because uh, I guess the way I look at it is, you know, if you say a drug works for someone, you can you have studies, you say, you know, generally this works in 75 percent people and 25 percent. But, you know, in your mind that it works 100 percent or zero percent. And so you have to cater your treatment strategy to an individual, not to a population. And so when you're looking at a population as a whole, you know, they're just looking at a million people versus what you would say. Well, actually, you're looking at 25,000 people over the age of 80 who are the most likely to have problems. And it would make much more sense to treat those individuals rather than just yeah. a million people, right? Or why healthcare workers, many of them who are 25, 30 years old, why are they getting vaccinated? Or, you know, in our healthcare system, which I'm sure is like every other one, there are people who work in the hospital, there are people who work in the insurance department, there are people who all work all throughout the system. They're all getting vaccinated long before people in the rest of the community that, you know, are most at risk. I, I, I... I do research full time, right? I do not, I'm not exposed to people. I mean, I'm not like, I, I'm not taking care of older people. And uh, yet uh, at Stanford, I, and I, yet I was offered the vaccine in the middle of, I think middle of January, late January. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was, and my mom, she's 80, lives in LA, doesn't get the vaccine until the middle of March. That is just not right. I'm, a, I'm 50, my risk of, if I get COVID is way less than my mom. Like no rational vaccination strategy offers me the vaccine before my mom. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could, you could chalk it up to, well, no, we've never tried to thrust this vaccination into the middle midst of a pandemic. And so people made decisions, I think, you know, and consensus forms in some strange way. And then you have these weird policies. I guess, fortunately, in this country, we had controlled experiments through federalism. We have some states that did it differently than other states. And and we saw that they probably had better results in some ways and that they had, you know, their elderly died at a lower, lower rate than you would ex anticipate other states because like, you know, I think comparing like Florida and California is a good example. Florida is an extremely old state, as we know, if you've ever walked around in Florida. Uh, and then, you know, California's a pretty young state. And I think their death rates are pretty similar. And that would be unexpected for disease that affects the elderly. I, in fact, I just calculated the age adjusted death rates the other day uh, from for like through the beginning of June. It's, it's basically... Uh, California is, is somewhere right in the middle of the pack for the age-adjusted per capita death rate from COVID, uh, like just below the the average. Uh, I think the, I think the the 23rd worst state, uh, 20, 20, I'm sorry, 20, 20, 23rd best. Uh, uh, the 20 like basically like at 25th is average. They're just below the average, 20, like 23. Whereas Florida is among the top top 10 best states. Yeah, and you wouldn't expect that with a disease that affects yeah. the elderly, right? I mean that that's clearly a Assuming that all it was a right, I mean, it's a policy decision, right? I mean, without a doubt. Yeah, they they protected the vulnerable, and they prioritized the protection of the vulnerable over and above slowing disease spread. California, on the other hand, prioritized slowing disease spread no matter what, and as a consequence, didn't protect the ended up not being able to protect the vulnerable when the push came to shove in in uh, during the the winter wave. Yeah, and so then, 
let's let's imagine now. I guess. Um, well, I mean, I guess just look at the look at the measures we had. Mask mandates. We've had lockdowns. We've had all sorts of other things. I mean, I'm in the state of Michigan. I mean, our governors initially said you can't get in a boat unless you have to paddle. Then you can get a boat. But if it's got a motor, you can't use that. Uh, you can't you, you can't buy fertilizer unless you go to an agricultural store like in the grocery. We have this grocery store that sells everything, and you know parts of the aisles are just roped off just because. I guess if I walked down that aisle and bought a carpet, that's where the COVID is there. Right. That the other places don't. I mean, have it could be in that carpet fiber, those rugs that they sell. I mean, I don't know. I can't can't prove it. Uh, but anyway, I mean, there's just sort of like these crazy policies that took, and of course, all those policies take a while to to rescind. I mean, we still are dealing with a lot of these policies in our hospital where we're, you know, wearing masks and stuff where no one in the community, no one anywhere else is wearing a mask. You know, I walk into optometrist's office, I have to wear a mask. Well, how's that more medical than like walking in? you know, Costco where they sell glasses to, I mean, just like these things just don't make any sense, but do they, I mean, do these measures, do you think they worked at all? I mean, I, I, I have, I have a hard time looking at any of the numbers and the graphs and to see anywhere that it actually anyone's been effective at stopping this virus that is pretty much endemic. I mean, I don't know that we made any impact at all. Yeah. I don't, I think the first order thing is that it had almost no impact. Um, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, some of the things we did like might've had some impacts. So, like, I think, uh, we finally started to reduce staff rotations at nursing homes. Um, that that probably had an impact. We we you know you, uh, deployed a rapid antigen tests and other things to nursing homes. I mean th- that may have had an impact. Uh, but like the general rest- restrictions on businesses and on s- school attendance and the the general craziness, I think most of that had nothing. Did nothing right. So like I like I think the uh, so I, I did a study comparing Swe- Sweden and South Korea, which didn't have mandatory stay-at-home orders in the early days of the epidemic against other European countries that did. And uh, you find no difference in the spread of the disease in the early in the epidemic. Yeah. Uh, even though some some places had mandatory stay-at-home orders. Those, actually, just think about that. Like the, uh, how is it that like, w- like what's the basis on which governors decided some activities are essential and some activities are not? Like what, and what makes governors be able to tell what is an essential versus what's not essential? Like it just and and it, does it actually have anything to do with disease control? I, I, I think there's no there's no like there's no one can look with a straight face say look we had a scientific process that decided decided one 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 thing after another that this was one was like an essential thing for society to work and was worth the disease risk and the other was not. I mean it's just, it it just isn't. It wasn't that. There were, it was a political thing um, that 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 and and a lot of it involved uh, just. Calculations had nothing to do with public health, um, and so it's not surprising that it that those kinds of, of distinctions have played no role in actually controlling the disease spread. Yeah, well, and I, you know when it comes down to what's essential, I mean I, that term always bothered me right from the start because I, you know, I tell people, well, I'm not an essential worker. I said you are totally essential. I mean, you might not be to my life. I mean, I don't do day trading and cryptocurrency, but you're essential to somebody, right? Or whatever you might do, it's, it's, it's you're providing some value to someone. And, uh, you know, it's like, we, I don't know. It's actually, it's, it's this weird thing. Like we created this two class society where the essential workers are actually in a sense, not as not like disposable. Right, exactly. You go, out, you go out and like, go get, even if you're 65, go out and, you know, be a store clerk and get exposed to the virus because you're essential. Whereas like, if you're, if you're non-essential, you can sit home, be protected, have people deliver stuff to you, you know, yeah. like, and and just generally have a, a, a protection from the virus. I mean, I think that 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 uh, that we're gonna, I mean, I've I've called that trickle down epidemiology. <laughs> um, 
like we just we just it's it just strikes me as so very wrong and i can't understand how so many americans uh decided that it was, it was this was a reasonable thing to do to our society divide us up into essential unessential and, and then like move on with life around around organized around that kind of idea around that distinction it seems really un-american yeah well and i and i would say in general and my experience with watching the mask mandates move uh, disappear here in michigan uh, you know initially the first couple of days everyone's still wearing a mask because everyone's kind of used to it and everyone's you know and i think most people go through life not trying to make trouble and i think that tends to be what most people's uh, you know mo is and once most people aren't wearing it, they're like, okay, I can take it off. And that's why I see all these claims like, oh, I'm going to wear my mask forever. I'm like, no, you're not. It's okay. I know you won't because it's inconvenient. It's annoying. It looks dumb. It, you can't breathe as well. I mean, I use them all the day and uh, all day in the operating room. I can't wait to take my mask off because, you know, you can see people's faces. All the reasons you don't want to wear a mask normally, except when you need to. Uh, yeah. So I, it doesn't surprise me those things happen. I mean, when... Is there going to be a real reckoning for this? And this is the real question, right? Because I think, you know, if we look at all the stats and all the curves and everything. At some point, there'll be something else will happen. it will be another flu strain or something will happen. And so will we look back five years from now and say, boy, those were all the absolute wrong things to do. Like everything we did was, was the wrong thing. Or are people going to still, you know, double down five, ten years from now when this happens? I mean, are we going to have an honest reflection on what we did, what we completely got wrong. What, what do you think? Well, there, I think there kind of, there has to be, right? I think I think in public life, I can think of very few things in my own, you know, fifty two, like it, it like it, it, uh, events that have happened in in American public life or the world's public public life that have had more of an impact. Like I think I've been thinking of this as like akin to like a world war in some sense, like like something that's affected the entire world. How could there not be an assessment, like an honest assessment of what worked, what didn't work, what we did wrong, what what the consequences are, uh, if only to like figure out what to do going to, to like sort of start to re repair some of the damage. Uh, I, I personally, and maybe you're not surprised by this, Eric, <laughs> I think I think that when when an honest assessment is done, we're going to start to think about this in the same way, like some like some people think about the Iraq War, right? Very very popular at the time, and uh, we look back and say, well, boy, why did we do that? You know, that was kind of a huge mistake. Um, I think I think there's going to be a lot of that, like especially around school closing. Like, what on earth were we thinking, keeping our kids out of school for 16 months? Like, how was that a reasonable response to what happened? Um, I think we're going to look back and regret it. Uh, but I do think I think that there has to be a formal assessment done, uh, not just of the of the uh, how well we dealt with the pandemic itself, but of the of the collateral damage from the policies we adopted, um, like an honest an honest accounting of that, uh, as well as an honest uh, assessment of how well science performed in promoting its, its free discussion within science. I mean, that that censorship within science, that's devastating, right? Like I, I, like, I don't see how science, free scientific discussion goes forward unless we have a reckoning around that. Um, and so I think those those kinds of discussions, formal discussions are gonna start, gonna, they're gonna start to happen whether we want them or not. And then I think five years from now, um, if we ha have continued to suppress our discussion around that, no one will trust public health and no one will trust science. Our only hope for as in, and, and no one will trust medicine either. I think our only hope to retain the trust the public had, had had in us prior to the pandemic is to is to open that up to a true reckoning where we where we honestly discuss what went wrong. Right? It's like kind of like a patient dies and you have an M and M yeah. to say, okay, what? I mean, you have a free and open discussion around what went wrong there so that you can learn from it. 
we have to do that here. We have no choice. Yeah, and I, I think it, I'm totally agree with you. And I, but I worry that you know the, the people who fund this. One is the government, which of course is the one that instituted all these these uh, you know measures, either whether the state level or the federal level, or even local level. Uh, so they're unlikely to sort of accuse themselves of doing the wrong thought, wrong thing. And also, I worry about the scientific community as, as well, because again, their funding comes from the same government who pushed this narrative, or at least was you know co-conspirator, whatever you know, with this whole thing. And so it. <clears throat> There will be all the heterodox people like you and others who are sort of growing in numbers, perhaps. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, I hope that at some point that just overwhelms the people who's the group think. I, and again, I think it's, you hit a critical mass and the people are like, well, of course. I mean, I didn't think it was a good idea at the time, but I went along with it because it seemed like the right thing. But, yeah, it was definitely dumb. I mean, my hope is that's where we sort of come. And then we don't. I think, I think like, like with the M&M, we don't point fingers. Right. right. And at the M&M conference, what you'd say is like, here's what we're wrong. Right. I, I think now there's some fingers that probably ought to be pointed, but I think that's very, very few. Yeah. The vast majority of scientists, my model of them uh, that didn't sit and speak up is just like they, they, it, it, it's, they would get pounded down and like they didn't know because it's hard to know about all these issues um, all, all at once. I mean, I, I think I, th I think it's not there's not a question of blame, but more a question of what went wrong. If, if we keep our focus on that, as opposed to like who did what something wrong, I'm much less interested in that than I am in like on, on what went wrong. Um, we'll do much better. I think that that kind of uh, that kind of spirit of of really looking at the the policies and assessing them honestly was is going to produce much better results than finding people to blame. I mean, I think I mean there, there'll be people that I mean that that's almost inevitable. It's part of the human spirit. I think to, unfortunate part of the human spirit to like look for scapegoats. Um, but uh, but you know, I, I, like I think for the most part, if we can if we can try to avoid that, we can we still should have a honest conversation about around that. I, I, I don't see how we avoid it, Eric. I just, it's the, the lockdowns are like a scar across the world yeah. and it's just unavoidable. Like you look at it and you go, my God, wh what have we done? Um, and I think people are gonna wanna talk about that. Now, a lot of people are gonna wanna forget, obviously. <laughs> um, some people with self-interest and some people because there's like so bad what's happened, right? So that's, I, I think, but, uh, and so I don't think it should be a central focus of, of life going forward but it is something something we should we should talk about before we move forward yeah well scapegoat is a term it was in the bible so clearly this has been going on for quite some time <laughs> for those sorts of yes. things right? i mean that's nothing nothing new All human emotions yeah. they haven't changed a whole lot in sort of the reckoning we do uh what do you think we're gonna what do you think is happening next with you i mean you've sort of been I mean, thrusting the spotlight on, I know this was not something i mean obviously it's not nothing no one plans a pandemic right but uh you you sort of become a prominent voice in this as long as well as your colleagues, uh, Dr. Kaldorf and Gupta and, and many others at this point. It seems like your ranks, if, if we use that term maybe loosely, but are growing. It's as far as people who are more willing to sort of look at things honestly. Do you feel like, do you feel like the momentum is behind you at this point where we're actually going to get to that an honest discussion and we're going to, I mean, it certainly feels like for me, the pandemic has sort of like just almost disappeared like completely. And the, certainly the United States, I mean, I realize the rest of the world is a different situation, but the United States, I mean, it's sort of like it's beaten yeah, I mean, with the vaccine, right? I mean, it's kind of over. Yeah, I, I do. I do think that the U.S. has turned a corner, which is really heartening. And I think that, that, that the conversation in the U.S. is starting to open up around that as a result of that. I don't, you called me heterodox. I don't think of myself as heterodox. And I, don't, I don't think that the views that I have about the pandemic will be seen as heterodox. Probably not, right? A year from now. Yeah. 
Yeah, at least I at least I hope not. I mean, they surprised, frankly surprised me. Um, the 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 spotlight also surprised me. I spent most of my life writing papers for you know ten people and you know, perfectly happy around that. Um, um, I, I do think that like you know so when I stop getting TV invitations, will we be a sign that the pandemic's over and I'm going to celebrate that? Um, I I, I think the um, uh, it's not quite done around the world. Like the UK is still in lockdown. Many other countries are still in lockdown. I think, but it, but that's coming, right? Because the, the 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 idea that you can get rid of the disease in your own country and then stay stay like that forever. I mean, New Zealand and Australia have learned the, the lesson the hard way that that's not possible. They're going to have to. They're going to be focused on how to reconnect with the world. And as soon as they do, the virus will come back in, right? And then we have to like, can, are they going to lock down over and over again forever like they, that they have done this past year? Uh, so I think the world is not quite done with it yet. Um, so I, I don't, I, I think uh, for me personally, uh, I do want to stay involved with thinking about what the lockdowns harms work. So I, I, I'm working on this project called Collateral Global. And you can go look on, online if you're whoever's listening. It's collateralglobal.org, uh, where we're documenting the, the the harms of the lockdown, both in the, in the scientific literature and also people's personal stories. Um, and uh, the the other thing I want to be involved with is, and I've worked on this in the past before, is is on on scientific productivity. But I think uh, like the, I think science has has taken a hit during this pandemic. And I want to work to, to try to repair the damage if I possibly can, to think about, about ways, that, about policies that we can adopt to promote open discussion in science, promote novel novel uh, uh, exploration in science, and, not, not, uh, and uh, it generally just to have a, a scientific culture that that is more accepting of, of, of discussion when on, on controversial issues as opposed to like uh, this sort of knee-jerk attempt to, to a desire to like silence any voice that, that might might disagree. Um, so I'll, I'll be involved with those things. I do actually, I'm st genuinely still interested in health policy, which is what I worked on before <laughs> the epidemic. And I, I'll try to, try to get back to those, although it's, it, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll know the epidemic's truly over once I can, all I do is do health policy again. Well. I hope that's not too much longer from now. I do think, at least in this country, we have pretty much, like you said, rounded the corner. I feel like we've rounded third base. The only concern I have now is the lingering effects of bad policy that people continue to push, and and namely, it's it's the vaccine passports or the restriction of people who are vaccinated, you know, non-vaccinated. Uh, and I, I had predicted, I don't know, a few months ago, not that it's a novel prediction, but that by the time vaccine passports, people had kind of figured out how to really implement them, that they no longer be useful like people are like yeah we don't really care anymore because we've either had it or we've got the vaccine we realize it works we're not too concerned you got that it. exactly right eric and in, in like in israel they they implemented them they got 90 well it's like a huge percentage of the population vaccinated uh, not 100 percent, obviously yeah. uh because they're children uh, and, and, and other groups that were vaccine hesitant um they tried to implement them and people were just frustrated they, i think they just rescinded them because they're, they're useless the deaths are, are very very low because they protected their vulnerable um, I think we will see the same thing here. I, th I, th I do think like there's, I worry about the vaccine passports in part because it sort of creates this, it emphasizes this two tier society. No kidding. Well, who got sick with COVID and then recovered? It's the, it's the working class. And yet we don't recognize their immunity. They're not allowed to participate in society like normal just because they don't really need the vaccine. There's not, not real benefit from them taking the vaccine because you have longer lasting protective immunity after you get the, after you recover. Right. Yeah. Um, um, so I think that that two-tier society idea, I think it's not, I mean, Americans don't, I don't think we put up with that. I mean, like, we're not a caste-based society. We just, we're not, we just aren't. 
Um, and I think I think that so I think Americans will reject it over time. Hopefully not not, not in the too too distant future. I do think that there's some harm to be done, like around like the, I've seen vaccine mandates by universities for kids. You know, to, again, yes. like my college students are kids, right? It's like, what is that? Like, what's that about? Like, wh- who are we protecting? I'm already vaccinated now. At this point, most of my colleagues are. Yeah. They want it. And so what What purpose is served by forcing kids, especially when the vaccines are not tested well in kids and the kids don't really benefit on net from them because the, the harm from COVID is so low to kids versus an uncertain I mean, probably low, but still uncertain harm from the vaccines. And what we're seeing the reports, for instance, of myocarditis, for instance, with the with the with the, uh, with the mRNA vaccines. Um, I think the, they're going to regret the mandates because um, they're they're now essentially forcing a medical treatment that actually on net doesn't benefit the people on whom the, that they're mandating. Yeah, well, uh, and and I had a discussion with Dr. Norchasm, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but he's you know talks a lot about natural immunity versus vaccine immunity. It is immunity, right? We shouldn't separate them. And if you add them together, we're at the point where, you know, you don't really care too much. And certainly giving someone a medical treatment where, you know, there's no benefit for someone who's got immunity, uh, you know, it's, that's like basic tenet of medical ethics, right? You don't do no harm, even if the harm is probably incredibly tiny when it comes to the vaccinations, but there's still some, yeah, if you're going to benefit, it's, it's, you know, it's more than zero. No, that's exactly it. I mean, it's, it's not that it's not like, I, I do think it's unethical, but I don't think it's like crazily unethical. No, I think yeah. the harm from the vaccines is small. But on the other hand, there's the, the, the harm from COVID in a 12-year-old a, a is, is almost zero. Um, like, why would you mandate a 12 or 20-year-old to get the vaccine when there's some harm and almost no benefit? Like, it's just, now, I'm not saying don't give it, don't let a 20-year-old take it if they don't want it. If they want it, let them. I mean, that's fine. I'm just saying don't mandate it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think, you know, m- most of these things it's really easy to put a regulation or restriction in place. It's really hard to rescind it. And I've, you know, when it comes to the hospital, especially where the most heavily regulated part of the economy, I think even more than finance. And so when they say, well, you know, if you can't, you have to have COVID tests prior to say, and I'm in the operating theater. So prior to surgery, you have to have a COVID test. Well, now we say, well, if you've been vaccinated, you don't have to. I've been trying to argue, well, we have, I'm in the director of one of the surgery centers we have. And I said, well, if you've, if we know you've had it, well, then we also don't need to test you. I mean, what's the point? I mean, we've already decided that, yes, there are breakthroughs. And if you've had the infection, we know that people are reinfected. But we know people who've been vaccinated yeah. been re- have been reinfected. But, but like it's a tiny it's percentage, It's a tiny right? percent, right? I mean, I, I think, I think generally, uh, generally both natural infection and, and, immune, and the vaccines, especially with the variants that have come up, they're, protect, they're, they're certainly protective against like severe outcomes of disease. And they probably are mostly like in terms of repeat infections that reducing viral load and all this other stuff. That's, that, that's all true, but they're not sterilizing, right? So you, the vaccines and natural immunity are not going to like protect you against getting any reinfection ever again. That's just not, that's not the case. Um, and I don't think anything is going to be sterilizing. Like, there's no, the coronaviruses are like, we don't have a vaccine for any of the other ones. Um, why would you expect them to be sterilized? Like they're not a tool to stop the disease spread. Um, the key thing is when you're, when you're, when you're, uh, Taking care of someone who's who's uh, uh, I mean it's 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 going to be a challenge going forward. Like if you have a if you if you're if you're doing surgery on someone who's seventy five years old and doesn't have hasn't been vaccinated, even if you're even if the surgeon is vaccinated, there's no guarantee that they can't spread it. Yeah, because it's not sterilizing immunity from the vaccine. It's also not sterilizing immunity from prior infections. I think the the key thing is protection of the seventy five year old by vaccination. Yeah. 
or by prior infection, right? I think that's that, that we should start thinking about it in that way. Uh, the vaccine protects the person who's been vaccinated. It part, it most, it, most, it, it does produce some protection for other people, but it's not sterilizing. So it's not like complete protection for other people. Um, as long as we protected the vulnerable, that's, we're, we're kind of done. Yeah. With, with like it's now we can treat it like other we treat other diseases um and other conditions you know you you you, you wear masks because you know you don't want to spread droplets which might have bacteria into the surgical field right i mean like that you will we can start thinking about or we put in like uh, good air filtration systems so that it, it, it whisks out any viruses in the in the operating theater right i mean those kinds of things are like reasonable protection um asking you to be vaccinated uh, when you've already had the disease and are have basically the same level of protection, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, no, I think, and I think just like when I talked to Dr. Graham back in well, last year, even we were talking about this and how he said, this is going to be endemic. We're not talking about it right now, but it's going to be an endemic disease. We're going to, it's going to be circulating forever. It's too it penetrated too far within, you know, in the world. Uh, and it's going to be like the other coronaviruses. It probably once, you know, maybe people who grow up with it, younger people are, it's probably going to be like a regular cold. It may or may not mutate to be worse or more infectious or whatever. We don't know, but fundamentally, it's probably going to be, you know, it'll be what it is. And when it's I talk to Dr. Gotti, she's talking the same thing that you are, that essentially, you know, we'll have immunity to this. It may not be um, full immunity, might not prevent you from getting a, a upper respiratory infection, a cold, sniffle or sneeze or something, but you're not going to be going to the hospital. You're not going to be dying of it, most likely. And so that's, I mean, that is a win, right? I mean, that's... Yes. That that is a win. I like mean, if you could, if you could still even spread polio, but you can no one actually gets the paralyzing effects of polio. That's a win, right? It's a win, right? I mean, it's 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 going to join the two hundred other diseases that affect mankind, yeah. and we'll just we'll just have to cope with this two hundred first or whatever the number is. Like it's 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 just, I mean, like I think the idea that we can um, live our life risk free, if not just for COVID, which which just spoiled the whole thing. I mean, it's just that's just a mistake in thinking. Right. It's it. Uh, I think I mean, part of the panic, I think, is we've been we've grown used to this idea that infectious diseases are no longer a problem. I mean, you know, like if you of course, if you live in the develop, developing countries, it, it is a problem. So that, that they're, they're they're not surprised by this. But like in the, we in rich countries have thought you're not going to die of infectious disease. We've conquered it. Well, we have antibiotics. We, we're, yeah. we have hygiene. It's, it's, and we I think part of the reason why we've had this sort of crazy response to the virus is is that for the first time in living memory infectious disease is a reason is, is actually in front of us as a possibility of something that, that might happen to us um and we did not react well yeah. well and you know when it comes to us assessing risk it's really hard for people to assess it they're there they assess it and base it on what they know or what they see and what they're surrounded by and so when you had six months of wall-to-wall coverage, wherever you turn, whatever people are talking to, people are talking about this virus, suddenly infectious disease, it come, you know, is prominent, it's the forefront, and it's the most dangerous, de- deadly thing that exists. Well, people are still getting in automobiles, getting accidents. I mean, there's still, you know, a million other things that can happen to you, which we worried about more before, and now it, it doesn't, we just shifted our sort of amount of our risk tolerance or our understanding what the real risk is. And obviously, the fact that it's going away, um, it'll... Well, those will become more prominent in our minds, and I think this will go away again, which it should. Yeah, I mean, as long as we don't have institutionalized hypochondria, like we, it's just, it can just be like personal hypochondria. That's all for right. like institutionalization of it makes no yes. sense. Yes, <laughs> that is absolutely. There's no shortage of that. Well, Doctor Vadakari, I don't want to take more time. I really appreciate the conversation. I'd encourage everyone to go to collateralglobal.com, and the, the show links will be. Dot org. Yeah. What's that? 
Collateralglobal.org. Oh, .org. Good thing I repeated there. Uh, .org. And uh, there you can find more about what you're doing and sort of, re I guess, reengaging the scientific community and in, in establishing scientific <laughs> discussion, I guess, is probably the best way to sort of put it, right? Uh, thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate it a ton. Thank you, Eric. Real pleasure to be with you. Thanks again. A great show with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Really appreciate him coming on. But before we finish up, don't forget to visit locumstory.com or drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory to get real unbiased answers to all your locum tenants questions. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. Thank you.